Well, um, so I, I told Vlad a little bit ago um, that I was very thankful that he was here, but uh, and I meant no disrespect to him, but Betty's got the hardest job of the day, uh, especially because she's going to try to interpret as I start talking, and you all know I tend to talk a little fast, so good luck. I would slow down, but I don't know how. Um, so we're going to do our best here. Uh, would you all join me as we pray? I want to pray for FGCI. I want to pray for Joel and for Vlad and for Betty. Um, and I want to pray for our time together. So, so would you join me as, I, as we pray? Father, I thank you so much for who you are above everything else. God, for the work that you're doing in Romania, Moldova, uh, Ukraine, God, I'm so thankful that you continue to work, Lord, and I'm thankful that we have this opportunity to hear from brothers and sisters who are a part of the work that you're doing there. Um, Lord, I'm so thankful that you join us together and you allow us to to partner, to support the work that FGCI is doing. Um, So, Lord, I pray that you would bless that ministry, that you would give them opportunity after opportunity to share the hope they have in Jesus. Um, Lord, and I pray that as a result of that, we would see many, many come to salvation. Many, many people go from death to life. Many, many know you for all eternity. Um, Lord, that's the work that we want. And that's what we pray that you would do through Joel, through Vlad. Um, Lord, I just pray that you would do an incredible work. Um, I thank you for the time that they were willing to take here uh, to spend with us today. Lord, and I pray that it would be a blessing to them. Um, whether that's through, through finances, whether that's through going with them, or if that's through prayer, or whatever that looks like. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see how we can be a part of the work that they're doing. Um, so Lord, I pray that you would just, just open our eyes so that we might see. Uh, Lord, as we, as we turn our attention to your word, as we open this and we, we look to see what your word says, I pray that you would guide us into this truth. Uh, that you would send the Holy Spirit, that he would help us, that he would direct us, that he would teach us. Uh, so Lord, I pray for your help. I pray for the wisdom that only you can give. Uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, now, uh, one thing I do want to do, and uh, I, I really have since revival, I feel like the guy that hits you up for money all the time, but I'm going to do it again, um, and I'm really not sorry for it. Um, and they haven't asked for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, uh, we already support FGCI as a church, um, but if you want to know how you can support FGCI, um, talk to Joel um, a- after the service. Ask him how you can support them financially. Um, and if you want to give to the church and you want to make sure that that gets directed towards them, if you're writing a check, just put in the, MO, in the memo FGCI because we want to support the work that they're doing. Um, we want to make sure that we support with prayer, with whatever aid we can send uh, their way. Uh, so, so please consider giving to FGCI. All right. Now, if you want to open God's Word with me, um, we're going we're gonna to change things up a little bit. Don't go to Matthew, and all of you are saying, well, why not? Well, uh, we'll be back to that in two weeks. Um, but today, go to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. Um, that's going to be our text for today, because we are starting a new series today as we work. We're going to continue working through Matthew. Um, that's kind of the aim, is to keep going through it. But um, as we do, we're going to cover some really important topics, some really important topics as we work our way towards Easter. Um, and as Jesus starts teaching in this next section of Matthew, starting in Matthew 19, he focuses in on some, some topics that are very important for us today. 
Um, not saying that all of these topics don't have important ramifications, but he, in a very pointed way, touches on some topics that we need to know how to address. We need to be able to speak into. Um, topics like divorce, topics like wealth, topics like service and how that's tied to leadership. Um, and we're going to cover those over the next few weeks. But today, since we're going to be talking about divorce within this section, um, I thought it would be a good idea to understand uh, a biblical foundation for marriage. Um, I don't think that we can talk about divorce until we understand what God says about marriage in the first place. Um, so we're going to rewind all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 this week. Next week, we're going to look at Ephesians and see what the New Testament picture of marriage looks like. Um, and then we'll get to Matthew 19. Because we need to build this biblical foundation before we can go any further, okay? And as I thought about this, I realized um, this teaching, like this foundation is applicable for everyone. Um, now, some of you might know how this is applicable. Some of you are like, do we have to talk to marriage the week of Valentine's Day? Um, if you blew it, sorry about your luck, we're going to talk about marriage. Um, but some of you have solid marriages. Some of you in this room have really solid marriages. Um, and you probably aren't thinking, do I need to hear this? You probably know you need a biblical foundation if you have a solid marriage. Okay, so you probably already know. But some of you might have rocky marriages, and you might be thinking, do I need this? And I imagine if you are a follower of Jesus, and you have a rocky marriage, you know you need a biblical foundation. You know that you need to go back to a biblical foundation. Now, some of you, however, are not married. And some of you in the room are dating. Some of y'all are dating. Um, do you need to hear this topic of marriage? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Yes, you absolutely do. The next few weeks are going to have tremendous implications for how you view your relationship in the future and, and how you operate within that relationship today. Uh, so what we're going to talk about is going to have tremendous ramifications. Now, some of you, some of you aren't married, and marriage is like the furthest thing from your mind. Like, you have no interest in being married, period. Like, it's just not on your radar at all. Boys and girls, just something we don't want to talk about. Okay, just not an issue. Do you need to hear this? I think the answer is yes, you do. You still need to have a biblical foundation for marriage. Uh, because I would ask, do you have friends who are married? Do you have friends who are dating? Would you or someone you know someday maybe possibly like to be married? And if so, well, then you probably need to have a biblical foundation for marriage so that you can better serve your neighbor. Okay, so do you need that? Yes. And some of you aren't married and I want to be sensitive to this. Some of you have gone through the pain of divorce. I know some of you have gone through that. And you might be asking yourself, is this something I really need to deal with today? Um, and the answer is yes. Yes, it is. Not because you need to feel bad about your failures or the sin. Maybe it's not even a sin, that your failure. Maybe it's a sin committed against you. Um, and if that's you, do you still need to hear this? yes. Not so that you feel bad, but so that you can see, submit to, and encourage others with God's design for marriage. That's the aim today. So that you can see, submit to, and encourage others with God's design for marriage. Now, what that means is that this text is universally applicable. Every single one of you can use this text. Um, I, I was thinking about this. My nine-year-old daughter today needs to have this foundation. My five-year-old son needs to have this foundation, and there's no better time to start laying this foundation than now. 
Um, not only that, but then I was thinking like, okay, then there's the other end of the spectrum, not just my five-year-old son, but my parents who have been married for 40 years, they still need to grow in this foundation. Um, and I can say that because they know that. We need to grow in this foundation. So I would invite you, stand with me. Uh, let's read God's word together today. Let's read God's word. Um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 18. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. All right. So we're going to be looking at this biblical foundation for marriage, okay, that starts all the way back in the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, um, in the first days of creation. And we're going to find some of these foundational principles, and you could go through this and you could pull out a whole bunch. I'm going to focus on three, three foundational principles this morning. And the first is that man is made relationally. Man is made relational. Verse 18 Verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said. And before we go any further into this text, we need to pause for just a moment and understand the authority that's speaking here. Okay, because if we don't understand the authority that is speaking, then we're not going to understand the rest of this, okay? This is the Lord God who is speaking. This is God who's saying, Here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. Here's why a man is bound to his wife. So we need to understand this authority. And in the Hebrew, there's two words here as it says the Lord God. Okay, the first is Yahweh. It's Yahweh. Um, And as you read through your Bible, you probably notice that there's some places where it says the Lord and it's in all caps. When you see that, it's most likely Yahweh. Okay, Um, this is the covenant name for the God of Israel. Yahweh. Um, Genesis 2 is the first time it's used. And this name comes from the Hebrew verb that means to be. Um, So whenever God says, or whenever we call God Yahweh, or we see this name in Scripture, what we're seeing is the one who is says this. That's who's speaking here. This is the one who is, the one who was, the one who will always be like the eternal God. There is no higher authority than the one who was there even before things began. That God has ultimate authority. So we need to understand that that's the one speaking. There is nothing higher than him. And that's the first word. But the second word is Elohim. Now, the reason that this word is so important is, because, well, it's a more generic name for God. But, but as you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you find in the very first words, it says, in the beginning, God. And where it says God, that's the word Elohim. 
So whenever it says the Lord God, we're talking about the covenant God of Israel, the one who was there in the beginning. Like the one, the creative agent in all of history is the one speaking here. He's the one that's doing this work. So we need to understand that that's who is speaking here. And the point is the first words of verse 18, they display authority. God is now telling man how mankind was made. Telling him how mankind was made. And the reason that's so significant is this. Uh, As a church, we don't believe that marriage is some simple social construct. Um, It's some social arrangement. It's something so that you can file... uh, File joint tax returns. Um, that's not the point of marriage. Um, instead, we believe we believe that the powerful agent in all of creation, the eternal creator, declares these truths about marriage. And there is no higher authority. Now, look, we can make all kinds of rules and regulations, excuses and exceptions for how marriage looks, who can or who cannot enter into this union, what marriage means and how it dissolves. But who is the ultimate authority? The Lord God. God has the ultimate authority. He is the ultimate authority. And he says, here's what marriage is and why it exists. We need to understand that's who's speaking here. Okay, so verse 18, it goes on. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Um, Some of y'all have been at weddings that I've officiated. This is something that I feel like I come back to every time. It is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone. Because here, for the very first time in all of history, not just human history, history, period. Like, this is the very first time that God declares that something's not good. You go through the first five days of creation, and four times there, God declares, looks at his creation, he looks at his creation and declares that it is good. God's creation is good. Now, see, what happens here is we're in day six, right? Now, the first chapter of Genesis, it kind of gives us an overview of the six days of creation. Chapter two starts with the seventh day where God rests. But then it kind of takes that sixth day out of creation and blows it up so that we can see what happens. Okay, so that's what's going on here in chapter two of Genesis. We're getting an exploded view of chapter six. Okay, and we're here in the middle of chapter six. And in the end, God's going to say everything was very good indeed. But, right here, God looks at his creation and realizes, it's not done yet. It's not good for the man to be alone. So church, uh, men in particular, um, it's going to be tempting for you to think that you're pretty self-sufficient. That you don't really need help. That you can do this all on your own. Um, But that's just not true. It's just not true. You were not made to live life in isolation. You're not created for isolation. You're not created to be self-sufficient. But see, here's the thing. God's not like us. I've told you several times, we're really good at identifying problems. We're not so good at providing solutions. Um, God's not that way. God not only identifies the problem, says it's not good for the man to be alone, but then he gives us the solution to this, right? Um, So God sets out and he says, I'm going to make him a helper. I'm going to make this man a helper. And this helper is going to correspond to the man. And where it says that this helper will correspond, what that means is uh, it means it's like what's in front of him. Um, So in a sense, it's like, well, this is going to be a sort of counterpart to the man. It's going to be similar to the man in many ways, but it's going to be distinct from him in some other ways. Um, And this is why men and women are different, just so you know. 
differences between men and women are not something that we should uh, criticize. Instead, it's something we should embrace because uh, God made men and women different. It's his design for us to be different. And now I've completely lost where I'm at. Okay, where am I going here? All right, so God, God then, he says, all right, well, I'm going to make this counterpart. And so God allows man to be a part of this process, right? And he parades all of these animals in front of the man. He creates animals and brings them to him. The man names them. But in the end, I can just feel how distraught this man was. Because at the end of verse 20, it says, no helper was found corresponding to him. You know, dog is not man's best friend. Um, I don't care what they want to tell you. A dog is not a man's best friend. It just isn't. Um, of course, you all know my feelings about pets. I'm just not, I'm not in on pets, but whatever. If you all are, good for you. I'm just not. Um, so dog is not man's best friend. And for cat lovers in the room, you can get all the cats you want. You can have a thousand cats living in your house. You know what? It's never going to meet the need you have. It's just not going to. Man is not best, uh, man is not, whew, I can't speak. Dog is not man's best friend. A wife is a man's best friend. A wife is a man's best friend. So what's the point? What's the point here? Man is made for relationships. Mankind is made for relationships. Um, now, that's not just me saying that as a preacher who's like, hey, y'all go get married. No, that's not, that's not it. That's not it at all. Every psychological study I've ever seen confirms what God's word shows us in Genesis chapter 2. God says it's not good for man to be alone. I found this, this uh, article. It was written by a guy named Robert Schmerling. He's, uh, uh, he's with Harvard Health Publishing. So this is a Harvard doctor. Okay, understand that. A Harvard doctor. And here's what he says. He says, given the growing body of evidence linking marriage with better health, it's worth asking why such a connection might exist. A number of researchers have explored this question. The precise reason is not known. Now, I read that last line, and I laughed a little bit. Because, y'all, okay, get this. I am not a Harvard doctor. (laughs) I'm not that smart. But I know something he doesn't know. I know why there's this link between better health and marriage. I know why. Because it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not complicated. God knew it back in Genesis chapter 2. He wrote it. He authored it. It's not good for man to be alone. Man is made, he is created, he is formed and intended for relationships. And that's the first foundational principle we need to recognize, is that man is made relationally. Second, man is made with distinction. Man is made with distinction. Now, there's two ways I mean that. Both, man is made with distinction from the rest of creation. Okay, so we have the rest of creation here, and man is distinct from that. But I also mean within mankind. Men and women are made with distinction. They're distinct from one another. They are not the same thing. Okay, now here's, here's something that some of you are going to agree with, but this might be a mind-blowing revelation for some of you. You all are not animals. You are not animals. Now, I remember being taught from the time I was a young child, like, little kid, I remember being taught that we are, we're simply animals. We are. I mean, right? That's what, that's what they told me from the time I was like this tall. Now, I'm not talking about my parents. Don't go to them and be like, you screwed him up. No, that's not the point. From the time I was a young child, I remember whether it was movies that we would watch, whether it was what was in the textbooks at school, no matter where you would go, they would tell you, you are an animal. Now, you might be a higher functioning animal, but you're an animal. And that's what we're taught. That's a lie. 
Y'all are not animals. You are made distinct from the rest of creation. You are different. Only mankind was imparted with the image of God. None of the rest of creation had that. Y'all are not animals, which is why we are different. Okay? I had a discussion with someone just a few weeks ago uh, about counseling. Now, some of y'all know that if, if we ever stop having babies, uh, uh, I plan to get a degree in uh, uh, Master of Divinity with an emphasis in biblical counseling. Uh, so counseling is interesting to me. Um, but I remember I was talking to somebody about a family and how we might be able to help them find the counsel that they need. And I said, yes, but I want to be very careful about how we find that counseling. I want to be very selective because most modern psychology is, it, it revolves around the idea that we need to treat the human animal. That if we can simply manipulate the environment enough that we might be able to get brain chemistry to be right, well, then we have it all figured out. Now, certainly, don't misunderstand, there is an aspect of that. We are flesh and blood. We have bodies, and we need to know how those work. And I'm very thankful for people who know how the body works. So don't misunderstand me. But whenever we simple, simply boil people down to biology, we have missed it. People have something else about them. There is a deeper person, an inner person, and we need to treat the whole person. And the only way we can do that is with the Word of God. So understand, whenever we treat people as animals, we completely miss this whole thing. And man is made distinct from animals. We are more than biology. So, to the best of my ability, whenever someone asks me for counsel, I'll do my best to bring the word of God to them. Now, don't overlook the physical part. Don't miss that. I'm not suggesting we do that either. Because we're made with bodies. And that's good. That's a blessing from God. But what we need to understand is that there are bigger things at play than just biology. So you're made distinct from the animals. But then there's the distinction between man and woman. Verse 21 says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took some of the ribs, some of his ribs, and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, this is fantastic. And there's some things I want to touch on here. First, this is the first surgery ever. (laughs) I love this. Like, God is the great physician, right? Well, here it is. Open man up, take some ribs, close him back up, send him to the recovery room. Um, That's kind of the way this plays out, right? Second thing I want to point out, though, is that there's some interesting language being used here. You get to verse 21, and this, this word, most of our English translations say ribs, right? Take the rib from the man. Um, turns out, in the Hebrew, this is a construction term. Y'all ever done any construction? Some of y'all I know have. Some of you have done some, some work, Okay. Now, this is a construction term. It means a support beam. So, God takes a support beam from the man. Takes it from his side. Okay, and a lot's been made of the reason why it comes from the side, so that the woman's not above or below the man. Instead, she's right there close to the heart where he can take, take the woman under her arm, right? There's been a lot that's been made out of that. But then there's another construction term in verse 22. God takes this, this support beam, and in verse 22 it says that God made the woman. Now, this word made is a construction term. So here you go, all you construction people, here it is. God takes a support beam and he built the woman. This is the Hebrew word banah, which means built. He constructed her from the material of the man. Now, now, couldn't God have formed the woman from the dust like he did the man? Could he have? I heard some people say yes. Well, he did it once. I don't see why he couldn't do it twice. Um, he is God after all. I imagine he could have done that. But he didn't. Instead, he used something in creation to fashion the woman. 
He used the man to build the woman. See, man was created. Woman was then made. And even here in the beginning, we see this distinction between men and women. Even in the way they're formed. Man was created. Woman was built. Different words are used here. So there's a distinction. Third, notice that the man, the man didn't go find her. Another thing I love pointing out at weddings. Um, God brought her to him. God brought the woman to the man. Now, here's what I love, okay? Um, I am super suave. Like, I am a true romantic. Um, as my kids would like to say, Daddy is so romance. And any of you who really know me know that that's not true. Um, but I, I remember back to when my wife and I, we first started dating. Now, that's been like a thousand years ago, okay? Um, we started dating in high school, and I thought I did some things to win my wife, like, there were some things I did to really grab her attention, to get her affections. Like, I'm going to flex a little bit over here. Um, yeah, now you all definitely know I'm joking. Um, I tried really hard to win my wife, but what I've had to recognize since I have married my wife is that I did not win my wife. God brought her to me. God gave her to me. Now, that's really important. Whenever we recognize, men especially, listen up, okay? Y'all are, men, are you awake? Nope, that's a problem. <laughs> Men, listen up. You got it? Are you awake now? Yes. Thank you. I got one. All right. Men, listen to this very carefully. Instead of thinking that your wife is something that you've chosen or you've won, what you need to understand is she is a gift from God to you. She is a gift of God to you. Now, that's really important. Because instead of viewing your wife as an obstacle or an enemy, now we're forced to recognize that she is a gift from God. That will change your marriage. It will revolutionize everything that you say and do to your wife. She is a gift to you. A gift. Now women, some of you are thinking, yeah, husbands, recognize I'm a gift. Yep, you were brought to him. You were brought to him. God brought you to him. Yeah, that means that you have a responsibility here too. Know that God doesn't make mistakes, does he? So whenever you were brought to your husband, he didn't screw that up. He knew what you needed and how you needed them. So he brought you together. God built the woman. Adam, he's been in the recovery room now. Now he's discharged by this great physician. And there is this grand reveal of the bride, right? Verse 23, the man said, This one outlasts is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken for man. And I love the way this is written. In most of your English translations, you're going to even see that this verse is written differently, right? It's written in kind of this poetic form. And I like to imagine that Adam sees his wife and he breaks out in song. Like he just starts singing. Um, I don't know if that really happened because most men aren't comfortable with their emotions, but this is before the fall, so maybe not, okay? So I like to imagine he starts singing. But he recognizes, just as soon as he sees this woman, he recognizes that this creature that God has brought to him is different than anything else he's seen. She is unique. She's different. She's like him. He says, this one's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's like me. This is what I've been waiting for. This is the one I've wanted Now, even though he recognizes that she's similar to him in many ways, he apparently also knows that she's different because he doesn't say, all right, here's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this one's another man. It's not not what he says, is it? Now, this is really important. He calls her woman. And whenever Adam calls her woman, 
this is, our English translations rarely do this justice, but this time it does. Okay, so we get it, woman and man, they are very close in our spellings, right? You just add the, the woe to the men and you get it. Too many jokes, we're going to move past that, okay? But you see how they're close, right? In the Hebrew, it's similar. In the Hebrew, it's ish and isha. It's the same word with a feminine ending added to it. So he notices that they're very similar, but she's different. That she's unique, she's distinct. So the man, what he's doing is he's acknowledging that she is a co-image bearer. That she deserves care and respect. Um, There's one commentator named David Guzik, he wrote this. He said, no one walks into a room and seeks the most uncomfortable seat. The natural concern we have for ourselves causes us to take care of ourselves. In a healthy marriage relationship, the husband realizes the essential union he has with his wife. And that he cannot bless her without blessing himself. And he cannot mistreat or neglect her without mistreating or neglecting himself. Y'all hear that? Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. How do you take care of yourself? You, you try to take care of yourself, right? You give it time and attention and you nurture your own body. Some of you are like, I've destroyed my body. Jared, you don't understand. No, I do understand. Y'all don't seek discomfort. You said you seek comfort. So whenever you consider your husband or wife, you are considering your own body. This similar, uh, this, this union, this similar treatment should be there. Now, so she is the same, but he also notices that she's distinct. And I want to share this quote from Elizabeth Elliot. Most of you are familiar with who Elizabeth Elliot is. She wrote this. She said, in what sense is red equal to blue? Hmm. Well, uh, They are equal only in the sense that they are both colors in the spectrum. In what sense is hot equal to cold? They're both temperatures. But beyond that, it is almost meaningless to talk about equality. Men and women are the same, right? You can say we're both colors. We're all colors or we're all temperatures. But there is some glaring differences between us. Glaring differences between us. Now, what man recognizes here is that this woman was made with the same essential image as him, the image of God implanted in them, but that the woman was distinct. She was different. Now, um, I I really want to touch on this, and I'm going to take all of maybe two minutes to do this, and I'm going to fly through this because I don't think it's worth beating on because you all probably agree with this. I imagine most of you agree with me on this, so I don't know that we need to spend a lot of time. If you were made as a man, you are a man. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't. He created you. So if you happen to be a woman and you say, well, I should have been a man, then what you're saying is that either God is a liar or he's a fool. Either one is not true. And I know most of you agree with me on that, so there's no point in really hammering on that. God doesn't make mistakes. Okay, So let's move past that. Man is made relational. Man is made with distinction. But then the third thing we need to understand, this third principle we need about marriage, man is made for intimacy. Man is made for intimacy. Verse 24, it says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. I don't typically do this, but I want to quote the King James Version here because I like the way it words it. And I typically use this at weddings because it's fantastic. King James Version here says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And I like, the reason I like King James, I like this idea of leaving and cleaving, okay? Maybe it's just the alliteration, uh, it's not really alliteration. What's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, has, anybody? Rhyme? Yeah, rhyme. 
<clears throat> I'm not very smart. I told you I'm not a Harvard doctor. Okay. So it's this idea of leaving and cleaving. Now, that should make us ask a question, a very important question. Who is the closest or the strongest tie in my life? With whom do I have the closest bond? Now, is that your husband and wife? Your husband or wife, is that, is that who you have the closest bond with? And if the answer is no, then you have missed it. According to God's word, your husband or your wife should be the closest bond you have. The closest. <clears throat> is it your parents? Is it your parents? Now, I've known a lot of married couples who would say yes to that. Well, they wouldn't say yes, but practically the answer is yes. Excuse me, I'm getting a little dry. <clears throat> so, I know, <clears throat> I know I've seen some marriages that really struggle because they have a hard time leaving. Now, whenever I do premarital counseling, I, I, I require premarital counseling before I do a wedding service. And what I always tell them is physical space while saying, well, let's move away from parents. Uh, that's not what the Bible says. But sometimes I think it's wise. Um, now, parents in the room are like, I don't want to hear that. I, I don't really care. Um, I'll just tell you my experience. Um, my wife and I, we were married seven years before we put any kind of real physical space between us and our parents. And we didn't realize how much we had leaned on our parents. Now, that's not to say don't lean on your parents. I love my parents. I'm very thankful for them. And I'm thankful for my in-laws. How many of you men can say that? <laughs> <clears throat> I am thankful for my in-laws. I'm very grateful for them. Um, but it wasn't until we had that physical space that we realized how much we needed each other. Um, so, I don't think it's unwise. <clears throat> that said, I want you all to stay here. So, there you go. Okay. Is it your parents? Parents are a blessing, but your husband or wife must be your closest bond. Is your closest bond your friends? Some people would say yes to that. I remember whenever Steph and I first started dating, um, I had a close friend, and I basically said, if you come between me and my friend, I'm going to choose my friend. That was when we were dating, y'all understand that. Um, and it was new. And I realized I was a liar. Because uh, she came between me and that friend, and I'm very thankful she did. For a number of reasons that I don't have time to get into. Um, but I'm very thankful. So, I don't get me wrong, again, I have fantastic friends that I have close ties with. But whenever it comes down to my wife or my friends, you better believe I'm riding with my wife. I'm with her. Now, here comes the one that's going to get me in trouble, and i got to hurry up, okay? Here's the one that gets me in trouble. Is your closest tie your children? Your closest bond, is it your children? Now, listen, you have a tremendous, a tremendous responsibility with your kids. <clears throat> like, huge responsibility. Don't, don't think I don't. I don't. I don't mean that you can just ignore your family. Tremendous responsibility. But Scripture does not command you to cleave to your children, it doesn't tell you to do that. Scripture tells you to care for your children, raise them up in the way they should go, but you're to cleave to your wife. Your wife is the most important. She is the closest tie that you should have. Your spouse. And too many times, marriages struggle or fail after having children because a husband or a wife, they focus solely on their children and they forget about their spouse. Um, I know I've watched people raise kids and raise families. And once their kids leave, they dissolve a marriage of 25 plus years. They say, we just didn't love each other anymore. Why? Because they didn't build that bond. They didn't cleave to one another. They were cleaving to their children. And once their children were gone, they had nothing left. 
Scripture tells us to love our spouses, to cleave to our spouse. Now, what does that look like in practice? I'm not telling you don't care for your kids, don't invest in your kids. Absolutely do that. Please, please, please. But there's wisdom needed and probably some good counsel on how to do that. Um, How it's played out in my life, I'll just tell you how I've I've practiced this. Uh, I let my kids see me prioritize my wife. At least I've tried to. Don't misunderstand. I've screwed up marriage more times than I can count. Okay? Um, Like, I have a very forgiving wife, and that's the only reason I'm still married. Um, But I I let my kids see me prioritize my wife. And I urge them to care for, to respect, and to love their mother because I care for, respect, and love their mother. I've, I've let them see me prioritize her. And the intimacy between husband and wife, it has to be nurtured, and it has to be the closest tie between them, not with anyone else. This close tie. <clears throat> Y'all, I'm getting really dry. I'm going to do my best to make it through the end of this. But I'm kind of struggling right now. Now, there's this last part here. Verse 25, and it talks about them becoming one flesh. And here's what everybody likes to talk about in church. Y'all ready for this? We're going to talk about sexual intimacy, but I'm going to be brief. Don't worry. Um, This becoming one flesh has the idea of physical intimacy. It carries that idea. And the reason the the physical infidelity is so detrimental to a marriage is because it involves the joining of two parties together into one. That physical union is a part of joining these two together as one. Um, see, whenever you do that and then you try to rip them apart, bad things happen. Bad things happen. Okay. Um, y'all, I, I worked, um, at Shive Drainage for, I don't know, a decade or more. Um, and I, I, I welded plastic. Okay. Now some of you think, how do you weld plastic? I know it's weird, but, um, I welded plastic. So you guys get the idea of welding, right? You take two pieces, you put them together, you fuse them together, right? Okay. So the two pieces become one. Y'all got that? Yeah? No? Well, I was decent at welding. Okay? I'm not saying I was great and it's not hard, so (laughs) there you go. It's not hard, is it? No? No? I told people I could train a a monkey in a spacesuit how to do it if I had to, but it's really not hard. So you take these two pieces, you put them together, you fuse them together, right? Now, what happens whenever you break those apart? Well, whenever you break those apart, part of this piece is still going to be stuck to this piece. And part of this piece is still going to be stuck here. They're going to be different than they were before. Now, there's a reason that you find people who have, who have had just repetitive physical relationships, one after the other after the other, and then you find that in the end, they don't even know who they are anymore. You know why? Because they've joined themselves with somebody else and ripped that apart so many times that they have lost their identity. They don't even know who they are anymore. Physical intimacy in this way is designed for a one-man, one-woman union. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. It will destroy you in the end. Listen, for those of you who are not married in the room, like, you are not intended for sexual intimacy until you are married. It shouldn't happen. It can't happen. And the only thing you're going to do is destroy yourself and the person that you're with. So just don't, okay? There's the easiest answer, just don't. You want to know know how do you avoid like all these bad things that happen whenever you have sex outside of marriage? Just don't, there you go. Um, And there should be total transparency within a marriage. Verse 25 says, both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. Now I believe that 
that this was both physical nakedness and something more. There was a total transparency, completely open between the husband and the wife. There was nothing hidden. It was all out in the open. And that's what God designed for marriage, this complete openness between one another. And I believe that, I believe that this is showing that they were totally transparent and nothing was hidden. And that's what we should long for in our marriages today. Total transparency, nothing hidden, everything completely open. And I believe that if our marriages hadn't been damaged by sin, they still would be completely open. Problem is, now we have sin. So we feel shame. And we feel guilt. And we feel as if we would be rejected if they only knew. Church, we need to long for this kind of openness. This kind of um, acceptance where there is no shame. There is no guilt. Instead, we should be completely vulnerable within our marriages. Um, And that's really not bad. Accepting one another with no shame and no guilt, that's what God designed marriage to be in the beginning. That's what we see here. Both were completely transparent and they felt no shame. So man is made relationally, made with distinction, made for intimacy, so what? Well, that's God's design for marriage as fast as I can do it. Um, One man, one woman, one union for life. It's what we're intended for. Um, that's how we can experience the intimacy that God made us for. Now, understand I'm not saying that being married is the only way you can be complete. I need to stress that. Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. If you decide that you're going to remain unmarried for your whole life, does that mean that you're never going to be whole? No, that's not what that means. Um, the only person that can make you whole is Jesus. There's nobody else that can do that. He is the only one that can do that. But what I'm trying to tell you is that we were not made to be alone. We need people around us. And here, God gives a woman as, as a blessing to the man. A wife as a blessing to the man. And now they can enjoy the distinction that God has, been, has made between them. The problem? <clears throat> the problem is that we as people, we have gone against his design for marriage. And we've gone against his design in many other ways. Um, and I think that most of us would agree that... We, as mankind, as a society, whatever, we have perverted God's picture of marriage. I think we would agree with that, right? Most of us. If you don't, talk to me afterwards and I'll straighten you out if I can. Um, The good news, the good news is this. God's grace is greater than our perversion. God's grace is greater. Um, Whether you're married or you're not, I want to urge you to uphold God's picture of marriage. And if you failed in this area, married or not, um, I want you to know Jesus came to make wrongs right. Um, he's the solution we need. And that includes mistakes that you've made in a marriage or out of a marriage. He came to fix those mistakes, to forgive sin. Um, y'all, most of you probably know that uh, there's talk of revival breaking out in Kentucky right now. Um, and um, the only reason I'm talking about that is because of this. Um, anytime there has been a, re- a true revival that's broke out in the church, it's always been accompanied with times of prayer and repentance. Um, it, every, every instance I've ever read about came with prayer and repentance. Um, and maybe you're asking yourself, what does that have to do with anything right now? Well, I just told you that many of us have perverted God's picture. We've distorted God's picture for marriage. And the solution is not, well, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and do better. The solution is to repent. 
is to turn to God, to turn to Christ and say, I have made a mess of what you've created. I've made a mess of it. Forgive me. And then to turn and follow after him with everything we have. So what's the big takeaway from today? Uphold God's picture for marriage. But I want to encourage you, turn to Jesus. Repent and turn to him as the only one who can fix the mistakes you've made. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you. Um, God, you are truly good. Lord, and I want to thank you um, for this for this union that you created. Um, Lord, I want to pray today that you would remind us that marriage is your invention, not ours. Um, that we need to look to your design if we want to see marriages that flourish. If we want to see a society that flourishes, Lord, we need to submit to your design. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us in that. That you would, that you would change our hearts so that, so that our, our thinking aligns with what you've said. Um, so, Lord, I pray that you would do that work in us. And that when we see our shortcomings, whether we think we've been close or we're a million miles away from your design, God, I pray that we would repent and that we would, we would move in your direction. And God, I know that only happens by your work in us. So God, I pray that you would change us, that you would work in the deepest part of us, that we would see our rebellion and we would turn from it and we would repent and follow after Jesus. So God, do that work in us, we pray. Uh, Father, whether somebody has been a believer uh, for 80 years or someone has been a believer for 10 minutes, God, I pray today that you would do a work, um, that you would draw us closer to you, that we might see our deep and desperate need for you as the creator of all things. Uh, Father, and I'm thankful that you've made a way for us to be forgiven through the work that you did in Jesus. Um, Father, let us turn to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.